this is a moment for a new type of wartime CEO, that we're in a new type of never-ending war of uncertainty, economic volatility, and that men need to be adopting the leadership skills and strategies of women. I actually think that what we saw happen through the pandemic shed a light on the fact that this move fast and break things model established by Mark Zuckerberg of the past decade does not work anymore, period. Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we unravel complex business trends and challenge preconceived notions of leadership. And today, we're looking to the future and asking, what is the new leadership archetype? Because the starry-eyed boy in a hoodie is on his way out. But now we're seeing a lot of calls to return to that hard-nosed, lean and mean leadership style of the 80s. Oh yeah, always be closing. (laughs) She says as she zips up her tech bro hoodie, or maybe I should say tech lady. (laughs) This is my lady hoodie. (laughs) Look, clearly we could all use some new models for leadership because these are tired and bad and irrelevant. So let's squash them and build something better. And as our guest today will share, 50% of the population already has the skills to do it. That's right. So kick it off, Cece. Today, we have friend and chief member favorite, Julia Borston. She's a senior correspondent at CNBC and the author of When Women Lead. This is obviously one of my favorite subjects, and we have so much to discuss. So thank you for joining us today, Julia. I'm thrilled to be here, and I was so grateful to get to include your story and the story of Chief in my book, In When Women Lead. (laughs) I loved the shout-outs. They were amazing. Thank you for including us alongside some amazing, amazing leaders in your book, But before we dive in, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your career journey and what drove you to write this book now. Yeah, so I've only had two jobs, which is sort of oversimplifies it, but I've only been at two companies straight out of college. I was a reporter at Fortune magazine. I was very lucky to get a reporting job right before the stock market crashed. I started in 2000. And I was a reporter at Fortune for six years, and I covered all sorts of different companies. The vast majority of people I interviewed were, well, they were all older because I was 21 years old when I started, but they were mostly white men. I was offered a full-time job at CNBC. I've been at CNBC for 16 years, for over 16 years, and I've really fallen in love with it. And one reason I've loved my job so much is I've gotten to interview so many amazing leaders, CEOs, founders, investors, and they've also enabled me to be really entrepreneurial. And in that time, over the past, I say 70 years, I really started to notice more women entering the picture in the leadership space. Because for the most part, of the thousands and thousands of people I've interviewed in 22 years, such a high percentage of them have been white men, started seeing more women really thinking about things differently problem-solving differently, picking different problems to solve, thinking more about this balance between long-term and short-term decision-making. And I was so inspired by the stories of the women I was interviewing sit in such sharp contrast to the lack of access of capital that women were getting. That on one hand, I was seeing these numbers over the past decade. Female founders have drawn about 3% of all venture capital dollars. And then I was meeting these women. I was like, gosh, they are amazing. 
I wanted more people to know about their stories and to know that leaders don't just look like Mark Zuckerberg. You know, innovative leaders don't just fit into that mold. There are all these other models that we should be considering when it comes to leadership. And so I started off just really wanting to tell these stories, and that's what inspired me to write the book. Yeah. Well, I love that it's really around the capital that was the motivator for you to say, okay, we need a book like this. One of the stats that I always think about is that in 2021, startups that were run entirely by men entirely by men, brought in more than 82% of all venture capital dollars, which is crazy. Yeah. Yes. You actually reference kind of this vicious cycle that women face in the startup world. What have you discovered as you dove into that more and did more research in that area? Yeah. And I think actually what you're pointing out is really essential here. Co-ed founding teams have managed to gain more capital over the years. Last year, the percentage of funding to female-only teams actually declined to 2% from 3% on average of the prior decade. You just look at male-only founding teams. 82% of all venture capital dollars. To me, that is such a missed opportunity. On one hand, because there is a wealth of data showing that companies with diverse leadership, diverse both in terms of gender and in terms of race, they perform better, higher returns financially. It seems insane not to have people who are building companies who represent the consumers of the products or services of those companies. I was really struck by this data and trying to understand If you have all this research, if you have all this evidence that investing in diverse founders will pay off financially, why are people not following their best interests in terms of where they're putting their money? People are financially motivated. Investors should want to make money. Why would they be only investing in the same more homogenous group of men if it's in their best interest to invest more in women? And I think it really comes down to this idea of pattern matching. There's some interesting research showing that the less frequently you see someone in a role or see a type of person in a role, the more you're going to assume that they're not good at that role. There was this fun study I I cited in the book about jockeys, because male and female jockeys compete directly against each other, which is really unusual. In most sports, men and women compete separately. What they found is that the fewer women who are competing in a type of race, the more the betting public assumed that women would be really bad in that category. People were actually betting against their own best interests because they're like, well, I don't see women doing hurdle races, so they've got to be bad at hurdle races. There's this human instinct, which has nothing to do with intent. It's not malicious. If you don't see a lot of female CEOs, the brain is going to assume women aren't good at being CEOs. One thing that was really surprising for me in doing all these interviews is the number of women who didn't originally see themselves as CEOs. I sort of fell into this. It sort of took a lot for me to realize that I could take on that CEO role because I just hadn't seen people like me in that role before. I think it's really important to sort of level the playing field and say, let's just make the best decisions rather than assuming that everyone has to fit into some sort of pre-existing pattern. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I'm sitting here in a hoodie right now trying to like at least cover some of the pattern recognition that somebody might see with a startup founder. It's similar for me of just, it was never something that I would have ever imagined myself being in. I think that's very different for many different people of their ambitions and other things. I think that's why it's so important to acknowledge the massive impact that pattern matching has on everyone's decision-making. I can't tell you how many of the women I interviewed said that the investors were like, I don't really get this business. It's not like something I've seen before. Can we ask my assistant if we care about the wedding industry? The founders were like, the wedding industry is a $50 billion industry. Of course you should care about it. But we're just not a part of your context, part of your sort of daily lexicon. So people have a hard time taking themselves out of these bubbles. 
Yeah, well, I think there is some patterns to be found for women founders. And one of those is that women founders actually are represented in roughly equal numbers as men in purpose-driven companies. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So there's a lot of data about the fact that women are more likely to found purpose-driven companies than their male counterparts. And there are various stats, but like one stat shows that women are 20% more likely. There are a lot of reasons for this. One is that women care more about the environment than men do. They also are more likely to be passionate about some sort of social or community cause. So like a healthcare issue or something around like microloans, this is something that women are more likely to say that they care about. There's that intent, but then there's also the bias or the lack thereof that comes into the investing cycle. There's an interesting study out of Harvard Business School that looked at the massive power of having a purpose to eliminate bias in investors. This study had basically actors present a pitch. A male actor and a female actor presented a pitch for a company. And the students who were evaluating both male and female would rather, almost universally, would rather invest in the male-led company, even though it was exactly the same company. So there is bias among everyone in picking what kind of company or founder you want to. Then the business school professors tweaked the experiment slightly, and they had the male and female actor present the same pitch, but this time it was a purpose-driven company. There was some additional social or environmental purpose in addition to generating profits. With that slight tweak, the students said equally that they would invest in the male and female-led company. And the reason for that is around the expectation that female founders are supposed to be warm. Women in general are supposed to be warm and nurturing. That is a stereotype. Female founders are expected to be warm and nurturing to fulfill that stereotype of femininity. When they have this additional purpose, it helps add that warmth to a sort of otherwise perceived male approach to business, to entrepreneurship. And that sort of helps mitigate the bias against women in those situations. I've talked to a number of female founders who said it's been really hard no matter what, but I think it's really interesting to think about it from a data perspective. And also just the stereotypes and the bias and the expectations that you and other women like you must always face. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, trust me, it's not easy, but it's not easy for any founder, man or woman. Well, 90% of all startups fail in the first decade, right? Yeah. Fundraising is not easy no matter what the gender. It is interesting to think that the type of business that you're pitching also comes into it in addition to who you are. That's super interesting. And also this idea that women are expected to be successful in certain types of fields. So if there's a very male-seeming field, women are not expected to succeed in it. In a field of retail or fashion or cosmetics or skincare, those are things where investors are more likely to see women as belonging. Maybe that would help mitigate some of the bias. None of this is fair or right, but it does exist. And I actually think knowing about these things is incredibly important to help navigate them, even though it all seems ridiculous from an arm's length distance. You talked a little bit about one of the perceived benefits of having women in leadership is this empathy and warmth. I would like to think that we over-index in that way. But can you talk more broadly about what the biggest benefits companies really achieve when they have women in leadership? Well, there is so much research here about the advantages of female leadership. And there are various studies, which I cite in When Women Lead, about how companies with women in the CEO role, women in the CFO role, women on boards outperform companies that are run by men. So there is a financial advantage of having more women in leadership. 
I think the number one advantage, which I think people forget about in terms of this idea of having more women in companies that are male-dominated, is there's some fascinating research about when how you have people from an out-group, someone who is not representative of the majority, then that person not only brings a new perspective, that seems obvious, but that outsider actually raises the game of everyone else in the group. Then if you just look at female leaders in general, the advantages of their leadership, I would say that the strengths, the skills, and the strategies that women bring to leadership are particularly valuable now more than ever. You mentioned empathy. Women rank a lot higher on performance of empathy. They have been socialized and trained to be able to figure out what other people are thinking. I was talking to a male leader recently, and he said, empathy is about being nice. And I said, no, 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 no. Empathy has nothing to do with niceness. Empathy is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Empathy may lead to compassion, but empathy itself is this skill to relate to what other people are thinking and feeling. I would say now that's table stakes. You want to relate to your employees. You want to relate to your customers who may be dealing with inflation or whatever. You want to think about how to better negotiate with your counterparties. You better be able to empathize with what they're thinking. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to come to the table. I think this idea of empathy and women being socialized to be much better at empathy is a great skill that women should be unleashing right now. Women are more likely to lead with gratitude, which was a big surprise to me. I sort of discovered this accidentally in my research. Gratitude correlates with longer-term thinking, and basically gratitude, practicing gratitude builds patience in leaders. Of course, we're all better off if we're planning for the long-term and not anxiously just looking for the near-term gain. Then another thing I found across the board is adaptability quotient. I mean, Carolyn, you are a perfect example of adaptability quotient. (laughs) Women have been found to have rank higher in adaptability by their employees. The pandemic was a perfect example of needing to be able to pivot, to read the data, to respond quickly, and not be so attached to plans you made six or 12 months ago that you weren't able to really look at how fast things are changing and how the product needed to evolve. And maybe you need to let go of things that were really important to you at the beginning. I mean, I think about how with Chief, everything was going to center in the clubhouse. That was going to be a really essential piece of everything. Then you said, that's not necessary anymore. We're letting go of this thing. We can expand far beyond that. There are obviously a wealth of examples, but women are more likely to take a divergent approach. And so really pull on threads, go down rabbit holes, ask questions about things that are tangential to try to paint a bigger picture understanding of a problem. So what is the universe? What is the forest? Whereas men are more likely to converge in on trying to help solve this particular tree. I actually think this bigger picture problem solving also ties into adaptability. Because if you've already spent the time to do the market research, to ask the questions, to pull on the threads that seem just vaguely related, then when things change, you can flip on a dime. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is so relevant to a time of uncertainty. And the last few years, everything has been uncertain. As soon as you got a little bit of footing, something else comes up. I mean, if you think about the moment we're in right now, which is there's a ton of economic uncertainty Everybody's talking about leadership needing to move away from the collaborative type of environment into the wartime CEO. A lot of things that actually fall into a little bit more of the 
man's stereotype of what leadership looks like. You're actually arguing the opposite, that a lot of these things around collaboration and adaptability actually let people get through these harder times better. Exactly. A hundred percent. This is a moment for a new type of wartime CEO, that we're in a new type of never-ending war of uncertainty, economic volatility, and that men need to be adopting the leadership skills and strategies of women. I actually think that what we saw happen through the pandemic shed a light on the fact that this move fast and break things model established by Mark Zuckerberg of the past decade does not work anymore, period. Yeah. Things need to be thoughtful and planned and deliberate. The GE cut the bottom 10% ruthless corner office model of Jeff Immelt that was in vogue when I was a young reporter at Fortune Magazine 20 years ago, that's not relevant either. I think this is a moment for figuring out a new model of leadership. I think that women have always been leading with the skills that everyone needs right now. Now is the time for everyone, even men, to think about what makes them a good leader, what makes them unique, what makes them distinct. I know for sure that the pandemic prompted a lot of people to reflect about how they wanted to be doing things. It was a great moment for me to be interviewing people for my book because everyone was stuck at home and thinking about what got them out of bed every morning. And I think now is the question of how are we going to keep running these companies? How do we want to think about profitability? What is our 10-year plan? How are we going to get through these tough times? And how are we going to keep our employees motivated? I am really hopeful that this is a moment for all of those more female leadership skills and strategies to really shine. I love what you just said, that we're always going to be in a time where you need a wartime CEO mentality. And so we have to redefine that instead of allowing ourselves to fall back into behaviors that hopefully we've started to make progress away from and towards a better way of leading. Also, just thinking even about the wartime CEO analogy, like who came up with that analogy? Definitely a man. (laughs) There's a kind of CEO you need for World War II, right? Trench warfare. There's a kind of CEO you need for the Vietnam War, which is a drawn-out war that lasts forever. There's a type of CEO you need for the Cold War. We have a war in Ukraine going on right now. That's a very different kind of war. So I think as the wars change, the strategies of the leaders to get through those wars change too. The business challenges that we're facing right now are a different kind of war. Yeah, definitely. You had just such a great breadth of people that you interviewed for this book. And you also interviewed some people who have had bumpy roads. You can argue whether those bumpy roads were deserved or not, but can you share a few examples of some of those leaders that have kind of navigated that backlash and how this perception of women leaders played into that for them? Oh, it's such a complicated question. I've talked about Rent the Runway, CEO Jen Hyman, Stitch Fix CEO, former CEO and founder Katrina Lake, and the Real Reels founder Julie Wainwright. Now, notably, Katrina Lake and Julie Wainwright are not running those companies anymore. The stocks have gone way down. All three of those companies have seen their stocks fall off a cliff. I would say if you look at the timing of when the stocks declined, it does correlate with a broader decline of the tech sector. So it is not like they are unique in that decline. It's interesting seeing the departure of their CEOs. I would also say we've seen a lot of male founders who don't last as CEOs of their companies. It's incredibly rare to have a CEO who's founded a company take the company public and last for 10 years as CEO. I don't think we should take the fact that these women are not running their companies that they founded anymore as an indication of failure. We need to make it clear that it's not women who only do that. I think that a lot of these companies maybe face more scrutiny because they were run by women. And I think about Rent the Runway. Jen Hyman had to do layoffs. They had all sorts of 
challenges in those early days of the pandemic when their business came to a screeching halt because they were renting eventware, and she had to do layoffs. And she was criticized for the manner in which she did it because it was not warm and nurturing. And that did not scan with expectations of women. She survived that. There is this constant question. Are women being treated the same way as men when they're behaving in a way that may be similar to how men typically behave? The number of ways in which women face double standards is massive. I accumulated a a stack of 50 of these academic studies talking about double standards, and it is mind-boggling and depressing and upsetting and almost like comical in the examples. Like if you make jokes at the office, women are going to be judged more harshly than men. They're not going to be taken seriously. If women succeed in male-dominated fields, they're going to be judged more harshly. It goes on and on. You obviously can't show any emotion and you definitely can't show anger. Just like you're never going to be able to fit all these criteria of, of expectations of women in the workforce. I've talked to a number of female CEOs who know that they're going to be judged more harshly. And it impacts a lot of women who I've talked to, CEOs, founders, who say, I don't want to be exposed in the press. I don't want to put a target on my back. It's this double-edged sword because on one hand, they want to give their companies attention and exposure. And on the other hand, they don't want to be out there as like one of the three female CEOs who's going to get taken down because of token theory, because they are rare and they are going to inherently draw an intense criticism and attention because of their rareness. I think it's a very complicated question. And yes, of course, there are plenty of women who've behaved badly and deserve to be criticized. I would say there are also plenty of other situations where women are held to this higher other standard of how women are supposed to behave. Yeah. I will say, given I am in a peer group of other founders, that peer group, when I'm talking to other women founders, the number of times that the conversation comes to a paranoia about a takedown never happens if I'm talking to any of my man peers, (laughs) like male founders. Never is a topic, but it is a real thing that is in people's mind. One of my biggest fears is that it would actually prevent really talented women from taking that leap and starting something. I was talking to a young woman in her late 20s, and she's a senior executive at a startup. She was here in Los Angeles. And she was telling me about some ideas for companies she had. I said, it sounds like you'll be a great CEO one day. And she said, I don't know. I sort of see myself as more of a COO. I said, why would you not want to be CEO? She's like, I don't know. Just like such a spotlight. She said, I think of myself more as a get it done person rather than the crazy visionary ideas person. I said, it's so funny because the media fixates on people like Elon Musk being this crazy visionary. And being someone who gets stuff done is actually an incredibly great skill for a CEO. And again, I mean, to this idea of a disconnect, I think there's a disconnect between what a CEO job is actually about and then this sort of fascination with the wild, genius, visionary founder, which is not actually like what most CEOs are like. You know, most CEOs are not Elon Musk sleeping on the floor of the Tesla factory. That's not a real thing. You know, for the vast majority of people, at least I hope you're not sleeping on the floor. I do think it's hard and scary for women. And I guess that's why we need to have more examples of women out there. I also think that another thing that's frustrating is a couple of female CEOs have said to me, I'm supposed to be like posting on social media. One woman was like, if I weren't running a company, I would not exist on social media. But as part of my marketing for my company, I need to be posting on social media and playing this role of female CEO on social media, which is like yet this other thing that I have to deal with which actually has nothing to do with my ability to run my company and do my job. So it's just another complicating factor. But I really hope, 
that women are not scared away by that because we need more female founders out there. I mean, how do you think we could counter that? What I think is amazing is things like your book where you're actually highlighting people that may not be as known. I think the people that other women look to as founders are the ones that are very prevalent on social media and that's how they become more known and that there are different ways of actually going through that journey that doesn't require you to be the face of the company, that it's not part of the requirement. Yeah. Well, another area that I just feel like we have to touch on is there has been a lot of data that has come out about how much senior executive women are dropping out of the workforce right now. Running a company like Chief, where like our mission is to drive more women into positions of leadership, it is absolutely heartbreaking to me to see this trend. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what you think some of the drivers of that are and what society, what companies, what whoever needs to help in this fight of making sure that we continue to drive more balanced representation and leadership. What do you think of the right things for us to be doing right now, seeing this trend. Yeah. So it's interesting because my book came out October 11th and about two weeks later, the study came out from Lean In McKinsey. The main finding of this year's annual study was the fact that for the first time ever, senior women, VP level and above, which I know is the same audience that Chief is focused on, were leaving the workforce in record numbers. They do this study every year. They've done it, I believe, since 2007. This is the first time they'd found this. And the reasons for it were just as depressing as you could imagine. Senior women felt like they weren't getting credit for their work. They felt like they were getting undermined. They felt like other people were sort of taking credit for things that they had done. And they didn't fundamentally, it all came down to not feeling valued and appreciated in their workplace. This data was really concerning to me because it has massive ripple effects. It's not just about women leaving. It's like what happens to the organization when those senior women who are relatively rare in their roles, women in the C-suite only represent about a quarter of all C-suite positions, what happens when they leave? You lose people who can influence culture, who can make decisions about things like parental leave, who can mentor young women, and also who can be a role model and create pattern recognition for both men and for women. So I think the negative ripple effects of that are massive and concerning. I think that there are a couple ways to talk about solutions to that, and one of them is the importance of organizations like Chief that are designed to create support networks and help women not only navigate those frustrating situations, but potentially affect change in those environments. I think there's a lot of research in When Women Lead about the value of small groups of women or other people in minority groups to battle the negative impact of bias. I think that that's why what Chief is doing is so powerful. Then I just hope that a lot of these women are not going to retire. I hope that they either enter other companies where they can have a positive impact and change the culture and bring more women along with them, or they found companies. We're seeing women found companies not just in their 30s, which is when men more typically found companies, but when they're older, in their 40s and 50s. And there's some fun data in my book about how women gain confidence after they're 40. That's when their confidence sort of becomes equal with that of men. I just hope that those women aren't lost from the workforce forever because I just think that the risk to the whole ecosystem is too massive. But I think that that's what you're doing at Chief, right? <laughs> well, that is the goal. It was both disheartening as like a company that has been focused for the last several years on that VP and above demographic to see that study, but also really validating of this is the place where we should be focused. 
the name of this podcast is The New Rules of Business. I always love to end all conversations with the question of, if you could write just one new rule for business that would break the white male leadership archetype once and for all, what would that new rule be? No pressure. (laughs) If I had to come with one rule, I would say it's finding your personal superpower and not defining yourself based on anyone else, not the other female leaders, not the other women in your company, but just what is authentic to you. It's like truly authentic leadership. Because I think when people are doing anything in a really authentic way, they feel stronger, they feel better, and they're just going to be more successful. One thing I really focused on in my book is just the vast differences in leadership styles. And this idea that traits that especially women have seen as flaws are not flaws. They're just traits that can be leveraged as superpowers. This idea that we all just need to figure out what we're good at, what we love doing. Once you have that self-knowledge, then anything is possible. Yeah, I love that. I actually was in a meeting yesterday where I said something about a habit of mine that is not the most positive habit. And there was somebody on the team that was like, you know what? I love that. That makes me think I can be a CEO one day too, because I also do that. (laughs) And I think it's great for people to just see very different styles and find their style and um, not let that be a barrier if you do not fit what typically has been the touted best leadership style. Yeah. And I write in the book about a lot of women who are introverts or suffered from imposter syndrome and figured out how to use those things to end up being more successful. Or even like one woman who is so hyper-competitive, she thought that was an advantage, but it turns out she was alienating her team and she had to figure out how to sort of leverage this super hyper-competitiveness in a different way to be successful. Well, that also might be one of my bad habits. I am definitely competitive. <laughs> but that could be a great habit too. It could, it could. As we think about these leadership styles, one of the other questions that we always love to have every guest answer is, what is the best piece of leadership advice that you've ever received? And maybe even the counter, if you have one, of what is the worst? The worst is don't do anything until you're really sure you're ready. Do your homework, take your time. Don't do it until you're really sure you've got it. Because that's not the advice that anyone has given to a man, I don't think. (laughs) And I think the best piece of advice was like, just go for it. You know more than you think you do. You're more prepared than you think you are. Don't be afraid. Just do it and you'll figure it out. Nothing can prepare you like actually doing it. Well, this has been so fun. I love the book. I've been such a fan of yours for a long time. Oh, thank you so much. Excited to see this out in the world. Some of the stories that you have in there, some of the research you have in there, I think is just so impactful. So really recommend for everyone to get a copy of the book, When Women Lead, and really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of yours and the podcast and the whole thing. Awesome. Thanks so much. That was Julia Borston, senior correspondent at CNBC and author of When Women Lead. 
And well, Linz, I'm just going to say I'm feeling pretty pumped up right now. Yeah, of course you are. After that nice compliment about your adaptability, you capable and resilient CEO, you. Well, thank you for recognizing my greatness, Linz. I always do. But seriously, Julia really pulled together the why behind the success of women-run companies, like how women are more likely to lead with gratitude, which correlates with patience and long-term thinking. Obviously, that's something that's lacking in a lot of companies today. And her points about empathy and vulnerability, they're not empty buzzwords, but they're also not about being nice. Ah, there's that word again. I thought we banned nice from the podcast. Okay, okay, we did. But as I was saying, these qualities are absolutely essential to running a business today, or table stakes, as Julia would put it. If you can't understand what other people are feeling and you don't take in perspectives from across the company, you're going to bomb. You're going to bomb.com. It feels like we're going through the tech bubble all over again as we watch companies crumbling all around us. And it's a scary time, so we need daring leaders to get through it. I just want to call out that you just said (laughs) bomb.com. But yes, daring leaders, but not reverting back to, as Julia was talking about, these wartime CEOs. That model didn't work before, and it's not going to work now. Yeah, but I wanted to be General Kaplan. Let's move it, troops. Get in line. You'll get no sympathy from me, buddy. (laughs) So convincing, Lindsay. Convincing? Isn't that what all generals try to be? Convincing? I sound like a general. (laughs) I guess the fact that you pull that off so poorly is evidence that that's not what your leadership looks like today. Mm. But by the way, I also just want to point out what she said about being the face of the company on social media. Yeah, it shouldn't be a requirement for women leaders and founders. So you're officially off the hook, Carolyn. Congrats to you. (laughs) I think my choice to stay off Twitter is actually looking wiser and wiser these days. Which is why everybody should follow you on LinkedIn. (laughs) True. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more episodes by following the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante and you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. As a member, you'll be connected with the world's most powerful network of executive women. Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Madison Lusby, Hannah Pedersen, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. The thing that has been really interesting about being on this book tour is talking to women and also men about the disconnect between the amount of progress that is perceived, particularly by men, and the amount of progress that's been achieved, which is obviously much less. And men are like, is 2022? How bad could things be? Where do you get your numbers from? That sounds impossible. What do you mean 2% of venture capital dollars? But like how many women are pitching anyway? Like just this incredulity at the lack of progress. The thing that it seems to be driving women the most nuts is not just that they haven't had the kind of progress that they anticipated, but also that especially men think that there's been more progress than there has. Yeah, that's fair. That's very fair. 